The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Episode 61. Hello and welcome to the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to make human connections by sharing bicycle stories. Anyone from anywhere in the world who's thrown a leg over a bicycle can identify with any other person who's done the same. Whether you like wrenching, riding, or collecting, it doesn't matter if you're a novice or a professional, you're in the right place if you want to hear some bicycle stories. First, we ask the question, do you know where your bike is? Sadly for a lot of people, that answer is no. And when they don't know, they turn to the bike index. And then we go back into American history with the Bicycle Nomad, who's going to be following the route of the Buffalo Soldiers Bicycle Corps. You have a lot of podcasts that you could choose to listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along with me for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. Sometimes I like to believe that the universe doesn't throw anything at us that we can't handle. But then, the universe gives us a lot of crap that we really don't want. Illness, natural disasters, oh I don't know, pandemics, and bike thieves. Getting a bike stolen is so much more personal than most thievery. If you get a computer stolen, yeah, that's you're missing some of the decals on it, but for the most part, all your personalized stuff is up in a cloud somewhere. A car for most people is just too expensive to modify that much, but yeah, you definitely would miss it. But a bike is almost closer to losing a pet, like somebody stole a half pet, half thing. We bond with bikes, they're super personal. It's not a simple issue. There's many things I've come to believe about bike thievery that seem to contradict each other, but they don't. They're just two statements that don't seem to reconcile with each other. This story was going to start off a little bit talking about how to protect your bike, and one possible strategy was uglifying your bike. If you're in a high crime area for bike thievery, one idea is to make your bike look as undesirable and as ugly as possible. At first, this makes sense, and it might have some merit to it. I mean, cosmetically damaging your Brooks saddle a little bit so it's less desirable as a resellable item, painting your bike in ugly, unattractive colors, heck, even spray painting over your tires a little bit. If you did this combined with multiple locks and a ton of other safety precautions, you still have a really good chance of getting your bike stolen or vandalized. Just walking through the streets of New York City, you see tons of really ugly, uglified bikes that just get beat on by people walking by them. And they're also missing parts. Saddles, wheels, chains. There's also an element of victim shaming, and that doesn't sit very well with anybody. Statements like, you were asking for it just parking such a nice bike on the street. Sentiments like that are unhelpful at best and cringy and a little creepy at worst. Another strong force in this whole dynamic is the risk to reward of stealing bicycles. Let's just say you were a young person and you were starting out and you were like, hmm, I'm going to get into crime. Don't do this because you you think that the Bike Karma podcast is suggesting you do this. Do not start a life of crime. But let's say that you were. Let's say a hypothetical person was. That life of crime, you'd look at, oh, should I run guns? Should I run drugs? And you go through a selection of other nefarious ideas. And one of the options on the list is bicycles. Bicycles have the highest potential reward in combination with the lowest potential risk out of just about all the options on that crime list. In a lot of areas, the risk of severe penalty is almost non-existent even after repeat offenses. This is by no means a commercial that you should become a bike thief, but just a fact. And this is for the low person doing a few bikes here and a few bikes there. Organized folks 
have a lot of potential profit, especially looking at newer things like e-bikes. The dollar values step up to a felony level, but even then there's still less momentum to go after bike thieves. In fact, there's some indications that criminals who are involved in much more violent crimes and more high stakes crimes also begin to dabble in bike thievery as it is less risky and less stressful, which is really messed up. My first real modern road bike that I bought was stolen and it still gets to me sometimes years later. I still occasionally do a search online to see if it's out there somewhere. And I think I'd trade a wheel set just to know what happened and why. The good news is there's bicycle advocates working on all kinds of fronts to try and make this problem less of an epidemic of crime. And it really is one. Bike advocates are lobbying for stronger penalties. People are getting in the habit of using multiple types of locks at the same time. Wireless trackers are becoming more common. And social media groups have started up in just about every major city to help to reclaim stolen bikes. One particularly effective branch of these people trying to turn things around are the folks at the Bike Index. This is a nonprofit organization that helps to register bikes and get the word out. Coordinating with riders, communities, law enforcement, politicians, you name it. They remind me of that old television show, The A-Team. When nobody else cares and there's no one else to turn to, there's the folks at the Bike Index. Yeah, the, the, the craziest, so, I mean, we get a lot of really crazy stories, but I, I always point out the ones that I call stolen bike turduckens. And for those of you that don't know what a turducken is, it's it's a food term. It's basically when you take a chicken and you stuff it inside of a duck, and then you stuff that duck inside of a turkey. So it's like a thing inside of a thing inside of a thing. So my, my stolen bike recoveries, the ones I always love are like, well, you know, we found your stolen bike. It was inside a stolen car which is now inside someone's living room because there was a high-speed chase and you know these these guys barrel through a wall and then they bailed so can can you come get your bike please um, this has happened a surprising number of times maybe not always with the the car inside of a home but every, every time there's a bike inside of another thing and typically a stolen car i always call those a stolen bike turducken my name is Brian Hance. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am co-founder of bikeindex.org, which is a bike registration and recovery service. I'm involved with all the stolen aspects of the bikes. We have people that do things like colleges and cities and policy, and then there's like an executive director and there's a code guy. But my thing is all things stolen bikes. What, where they go when they're stolen? How do you hunt them down? How do you find them? How do you recover them? What are some of the crazier situations they come back in? I am only interested basically what happens after a bike is stolen. We have the long-term one, so like our longest recovery, I wanna say is 11 or 12 years. So longest, longest bike recovery time, Oddly enough, that person still had an email on file that worked. This bike had made it from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast, and we were able to match it, you know, 100%, you know, without any question, you know, that was the bike. And a lot of the times these people get contacted, and they're like, oh man, you know, I, I've moved on, and I live in a different city or a different country now, just, just keep the bike. And this guy was like, absolutely not, I want that goddamn bike. I love that bike. You know, send me that bike immediately. I will pay, you know, I'll pay whatever shipping you need. And, you know, he was just over the moon that this, this bike came back. Back, as most people are it's it's a weird it, it, it's a weird feeling to like uh, a lot of people go through a really weird emotional phase when they when they lose something as you know like a bike is close to them and then to have it reunited with them is just um, it's just amazing that's one example that's like wow you know really long time that's amazing you know we get a lot of other stuff that we don't always tend to publicize this a lot because they're they tend to be darker you know more more horrible stories but there's many, many, many instances in which we'll recover a bike and I will talk to the bike's owner and the bike's owner will say, you know, look, I didn't, I didn't put this in my listing because I, I didn't, I, I didn't want it to be part of the story. But like when that bike got stolen from me, it was part of a larger crime. I got the shit beat out of me. I got put in the hospital. I was assaulted. We were robbed there. You know, there was another crime that happened and then the bike pops up, um, you know, most commonly in a pawn shop, and this is the the last one that happened. It's like, look, you know, I, 
I didn't want to tell you guys this, but like the fact that that bike popped up in a pawn shop, they had camera footage of the guy, and it turns out that that's one of the guys that was involved with this like really serious violent crime. Now we have a lead on the guys that put me in the hospital. So you know, don't I don't want you to spread this story, but like thank you for making this happen because it's it's the bike, the bike is the thing that got tracked. Um, you know, if it weren't for the bike, we wouldn't have a, a clue. We wouldn't have a lead on these guys. So that's that's another instance that that comes up quite a bit um, that we don't tend to, to publicize as much, mostly at the at the request of the victims. And then we get endless cases of like you know police showed up for this bike and we found a pound of meth and a bunch of AK forty sevens. Yay! <laughs> it's you know the the bike suddenly turns out to be the least of their problems. <laughs> the the bike is literally the the lowest value, least criminal thing that's actually going on here, but most most cops know when you you, know, you chase these guys that are serial fences and serial thieves, it's not always bikes. It's almost always drugs, guns, electronics, cash, you know, fentanyl, you name it. So we, we get a lot of that where somebody will be like, cool, we, you know, that we finally got a... We finally got a cop to come to this get a search warrant for the storage unit, and it's you know there's five hundred thousand dollars for the stolen stuff in here. Great! So those are <clears throat> those are always fun. Uh, those are always fantastic. I could, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I used to actually write all these recoveries up every month. I, we had a section on our blog where I would tell the little story of each one of the bikes that came back, and I'm sure I could troll that for some more here, but I had to stop writing it because, you know, as Bike Index got more and more popular and the number of recoveries increased, it went from like two hours a week to like four hours a week. I was spending, you know, six hours a week trying to write these 86 recoveries up. I was like, okay, this is this is overkill. This is, this is not sustainable. Um, but there, if you go to bikeindex.org slash news, there are many old recovery stories in there. And they're um, everything from a lot of instances of like bikers, you know, other cyclists helping other cyclists out. A lot of instances of, of revenge. It's like a whole pantheon of human remotion. Uh, a whole lot of instances of bike thieves who have regret and then bring it back the next day with, a, with, a, with an I'm sorry note. It, it's anything and everything. You know, there was one instance here where there was a, there was a Korean cyclist who, um, this poor Korean cyclist had this lifelong dream of, he flew to Canada and he was biking through America and he was biking all the way down to the tip to, um, was it Argentina? Tierra del Fuego? What's the southernmost tip? Yeah, the, the southernmost tip of Argentina. So he, he started this, and he had been saving for years, and he had this epic journey, and he had this perfect bike all dialed in, and he, you know, you know, he had this great start in Canada, and Canada was beautiful, and he crossed into America, and he made it to Portland, and on, like, the first, you know, day, bam, his bike gets stolen. You know, we, we see, I see all the reports that come in, and um, I saw this guy's report come in, and I was like, oh, God, you know, this one is really egregious. Let's let's try to get some more eyeballs on this. Let's try to do something about it. And I was, I was trying to communicate with him, and there was, you know, he clearly what like language-wise, he wasn't he wasn't quite understanding what I was saying, and he didn't really know who Bike Index was, and it, it was just there's just like a disconnect there. So I, I and you know I, I got together with some of our other local cycling people and just said, you know, this this is so horrible. Like this just sucks so bad. You know, I'm reading this guy's blog post and I'm translating it and he's like, you know, my dream has died. I am a failure. I'm going to go home and just get back to my shitty life. I was like, oh God, this guy's killing me. So we like, so I, I got it. And he, he wound up, you know, he, he found some from some South Koreans here who, who like put him up for the day while he was like trying, because they took everything. He had his little wallet and, you know, like one other little bag with him, but they took literally everything this guy was using to travel with. So I, I just said, look, you guys don't know who I am. I know you're in touch with, with Min Young Kim. Can you just tell him, be at this bar at Friday at five, like we will do the rest. Just make sure that he gets there and make sure that you guys bring him and just give us three days and we'll see what we can do. And it became one of those like crazy viral things where like I, you know, I threw it up on Twitter, I got it on Facebook, Bike Portland, which is a really huge popular cycling blog out here, picked it up, you know, then like the local news and like the next thing you know, there's like dudes from the embassy are calling me and like, I was like, holy shit. So come five o'clock on that Friday at this bar called Apex, which is a bike bar, you know, a bicycle bar, not a biker bar, but a bicycle bar here in Portland. We get there, and I thought there'd be 20 or 30 people. There's already like 60 people waiting. We just passed a giant bucket full of cash. 
people, you know, people showed up with actual bikes. At one point, a courier showed up, and he was just like, where's the South Korean kid that needs the bike stuff? And I'm like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking, who are you? And he's like, well, this this guy just told me, here's all these panniers, here's all this gear, here's this rain gear, he just he just wanted me to bring this by and drop it off. And then Showers Pass, which is a, which is a local um, clothing outfitter, Dude from Showers Pass just walked up and like, where's Kim at? And he just he's just like, here's five hundred dollars store credit. Come by tomorrow, we'll get you absolutely anything you need. You know, it was just one of those. Pardon my French. It's just fucking amazing moments where like everybody who had ever been impacted by a thief and any everybody who had ever had their day ruined and everybody who had ever had a dream cut short was just we're not standing over this anymore. And at the end of the day, this guy had more bike stuff than he knew what to do with, and we just loaded it into a car, handed him this giant bucket of money, and we were like, you know what? Portland sucks, but Portland is also awesome sometimes. <laughs> like, so we hope, you know, we hope you th- this gets you back in your feet. And he was completely blown away. So what he did, you know, he special ordered. He basically went and bought exactly the same bike, the same model, same um, same setup. Special, he had to like special order a computer with with the Korean keyboard. So he he had like two or three weeks to kill, and he had time to basically get back on his feet. Uh, but he also had a bunch of new gear and better gear than he even started out with in some instances. So he got his got his whole rig back together got his bike back together got his whole setup back together and and we were sort of chronicling this over time and then he resumed his journey and he left portland made it down to california crossed the border into mexico but now he had hundreds of people from portland who are following him on this journey now as opposed to the 12 people that were reading his blog before uh, <laughs> and he you know he completed that whole journey it took him it took him 18 months or something crazy like that but basically he he would cycle from city to city and country to country and he actually made it to the to the bottom of Tierra del fuego and at the end of his his journey he had this write up where he he kept these detailed statistics and it was how many miles how much money did I spend? How many flats did I have? How many, just just sort of numbers. And he, he, at the very end, said, worst city on this trip, Portland, Oregon. And then under that, it says, best city on this trip. And it said, Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and it was just like, it was, it was perfect. It was like the most succinct. Um, so that one, you know, even though we didn't recover the bike, it was, it was sort of like, that. that's one of my more prouder moments because it was just... There wasn't a single person in this town that hasn't understood that dude's frustration. And, you know, we had donations coming in from from other countries, other cities, other states, because it, it just resonated with so many people. It became this moral imperative to get Min Young back on his bike and back on his trip. While it wasn't a recovery story, it certainly was one of my more proud moments of, of Bike Index history. We talked a little bit about what offends so much when a bicycle is stolen. Why do we take it so personally? We we talk about this a lot. The same, I mean, we see the same phenomenon. We, we've we've talked about this forever. About you know what what is it about bikes that are different from you know you can steal my iPad. You know nobody cares. Like you know I've had cars stolen. Yeah, it sucked, but it just it doesn't suck in the same way that a like it doesn't resonate in the same way in your soul that a bike theft does. We've we've got all sorts of theories about why that is. Like, you know, the the customization, you know, you're you're generally having a better time on a bike than you are in a car or with an i you know, with an iPad or it just tends to be a more emotionally and physically visceral thing, so we think it sticks in your mind more. We've talked about it that like as humans, we tend to sort of wax nostalgic and get emotional about objects that take us places, which is why, you know, we name ships and their ladies. Um, and I think bikes sort of also fall into that category as opposed to just like, oh, it's a chainsaw. It's my dad's chainsaw, but it's like, it's a chainsaw. You know, it's like you talk about any any other any other item in that sort of four digit range that is commonly stolen from people. It's just not the same as like when it's a bike. We always joke. I get these emails, you know, you'll see this in Facebook groups and you'll see this on Twitter and you'll see this anytime someone has a bike stolen. It turns the most mild-mannered, meekest of people. They want to go, they want to go, you know, murder ninja. They want to go f***ing Rambo on these people where it's like, if I catch the guy that stole my bike, I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I will kill his, I, I will kill him. I will kill his family. I will salt his lands. I'll kill his neighbors. I'll kill his neighbor's friends. And you look at their profile, it's, I work in early child development, K-12, you know, or like, I am a librarian. <laughs> it's, it just, it just flips the switch with people. And what you said about, you know, I, I have bikes that I have had stolen from me that I'm still looking for. Every time I see, you know, that bike or a bike that looks like that bike out in, in the city, you know, I'm sort of like giving it the side eye thinking like, you know, is that my bike? Could, could that be my bike? I'm like, Brian, 
And that bike was stolen 15 years ago. You're not getting that bike back. Odds are it's not that bike. But emotionally, that's, that's what we do as humans. Starting in about the last five to 10 years, a whole lot of cities, you know, this is even pre-COVID, this is even pre all the sort of policing drawdown and all the sort of um, factors that have affected the last two years. But like, there were a lot of cities that just took all this stuff that used to be felony level crimes and just said, it's no longer a felony. You know, if, if nobody's bleeding, if nobody gets hurt, you can rob unarmed businesses and, and buildings. And, you know, as long as they're not occupied and there's no human pain, that's not a felony. California was the first one to do this. It was called Proposition 54, and people f***ing hate it because it, it just it just made everything so amazingly worse. And that just got exacerbated. You know, when, when COVID hit, suddenly a lot of cops were like, look, we have been told, you know, because of COVID, because of the risk of infection, because of, you know, we're told unless it's unless someone's shooting someone or getting shot, like we're not coming out. So property crime, burglaries, um, auto theft, you know, you, you name it. There's a whole raft of this type of thing. It, it just became hands off, you know, go go file your insurance. You know, nobody's hurt. So we, we have to focus on that stuff. What we've seen out here in Portland and I think other similar cities have seen is a lot of a, a lot of, you know, the, the police forces themselves have seen attrition. There's been a lot of officers that are gone. There's a lot of vacant positions. So it's sort of the exact same effect where it's like, well, if it's not one of these three things, which are all just categorically terrible, we're, we're not we're not going to show up. And, you know, as to whose fault or what the driving factor is, it's just the, the way of the world today. My neighbors here, you know, car theft is a big problem out here as well. And they're like, look, you know, I, I can't file my police report online for a stolen car. And I've been on hold for three and a half hours. <laughs> like, what? At, at what point am I going to get, you know, the police number that lets me file my insurance, like, to to deal with my stolen car? And there are, I mean, there are guys. You know, we literally have a dude here in Portland that was arrested 99 times for bike theft, and I'm sure it's in the hundreds at this point. But just literally, nothing happens to this guy because it's a non-violent crime and it's a property crime. And I think most of these guys know this: that you know, unless it, you can steal this thing all day long, and there's basically going to be no consequence for it, you're only going to get caught a small fraction of the time. Maybe get your your wrist slapped, but it's not like you're it's not like you're going to jail. And that is the sad truth of not only bikes, but a whole lot of other things in, in 2021. This came up last year during the pandemic. Do you remember back in the pandemic, there were all these businesses that like exercise equipment and cars and like all this stuff that, that people never expected to go through the roof. Bikes were one of those things. Every bike shop sold out during the pandemic. And it was a pure supply demand thing. It was, you know, everyone was stuck at home. Nobody wanted to ride the bus. Everyone was cooped up. They wanted to get out. They wanted to get exercise, but they had to do something solo and they had to do it something where they were out in free air. And so consequently, bikes became really valuable. And anybody who is in the biking community was like, wow, you know, these crappy old treks I have in my basement are suddenly worth $450 each on Craigslist because like the bike shops are out of bikes. So the whole supply demand thing got upended and like thieves realized this too. Thieves realized that like, holy shit, bikes are hot right now. And we saw a massive uptick of guys who are not addicts or, you know, guys at that far end of the spectrum that are just straight up burglary rings that would steal this is very true in colorado more more so than other other uh, states but you know you steal a truck you ram that truck into a bike shop preferably an e-bike shop or somebody that has carbon fiber you know where it's a much higher end product than just your sort of average trek you know you have another truck and you've got five or six guys and i mean you can get away with a hundred grand in about six minutes it's it's insane you can drive that truck two states over and you can probably sell every single one of those bikes by sundown probably before that shop even finished their insurance claim. I will just say that there's a lot of new outlets online for people to sell things, and they're all unregulated and they're all really problematic. We've talked to a number of people about this. There's also, I mean, there was a guy here that we, we wrote a blog post about, uh, this Russian dude who had a sort of credit card scam thing. He was working his way up the West Coast. We, we caught him in Portland and we, we wrote a, um, a warning, a, a private link warning to bike shops. In, basically, we thought he was headed to Seattle because he had come up from California and then he had made it to Portland. Fast forward four months later, a shop in Maryland who randomly who had seen our 
post that was intended for Seattle bike shops was like, this guy was in our shop. We chased him out. He damn near wrecked his car. He got arrested. Cops pulled him out. And in Portland alone, he got away with high five digits worth of bikes, and that was just one city. The fact that, you, I'll send you the link to this after we talk, but I mean, I mean, the fact that this guy, he just had a perfect rinse, cycle, repeat model of do some credit card fraud, use that credit card fraud to go buy five or six bikes. Each one of those bikes is in the five to $10,000 range because he was buying like super, super high end, like turns and um, other other e-bikes. Rad powers and just, just the, the sort of big bulky e-bike cargo bikes. Um, I don't know where that guy was selling them, but he was clearly unloading them for money. When cops pulled this guy out of his car, they found a bunch of credit card stuff, credit card cloning gear. They found you know, identity theft gear. They found bikes. They found cash. That sort of crime, that sort of like, wow, there's actually some thought and some organization here, and there's multiple members, and it's multi-state. There's other really more intense crimes like credit card cloning involved. That just went through the roof during the pandemic from, from our perspective, from what we were seeing. And it all just goes back to this became one of those things during the pandemic that was in super high demand. And if you could get a bunch of them really quickly by hook or by crook or by ramming a truck into a shop, it was guaranteed cash in hand by the next day. We've hypothesized a lot about e-bikes, why e-bikes. My theory, and I have nothing to back this up other than my own anecdotal experience and opinions, is that thieves love e-bikes for exactly the same reason like I love e-bikes. They're super fun. <laughs> They're like, you can go really far, really fast, and you don't have to work. Resale value-wise, they're amazing. You know, five years ago, the guy who broke into my house, he could get my commuter surly that retailed for about a thousand, twelve hundred, and he could probably sell it for three hundred on the market. No problem, cash in hand. Now he breaks in. I have a really spendy, nice e-bike. That really nice, spendy e-bike, he can sell that for fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred, just because it's just a higher value item. So of course he's going to love it. So it just they, they just are as utilitarian and fun and usable to to thieves as as they are to you know you and I and your average consumer. It just also happens that you can sell them for a hell of a lot more, and you can part them out like the batteries. You know there was a there was a rash of e-bike battery theft for a while because even if you can't get the bike, you can get the battery and you can unload that battery for three hundred fifty bucks on a website like OfferUp in about twenty five minutes. It, it's like an eight hundred dollar item that people want and people need, and they're consumable, so eventually people are gonna need replacements. If someone sees this $800 item for $200, $300, and it's gotta go fast, of course they're gonna buy it. Of course they're gonna look the other way. Um, and there's no way to trace them. They're just completely, you know, they're just black bricks. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's a lot of variables, there's a lot of factors when it when it comes to that. That's about my entire brain dump on the on the e-bike thing. At this point, we talked about that very frustrating dynamic where the police do recover a bicycle, but they don't have the people power to index it, log it, and make sure it gets back to the owner. Many of these recovered bikes, unfortunately, get auctioned off by the government rather than returned to their owners. It's yet another large gap in the system to contend with. Oh yeah. Yeah, they don't even they don't even have the manpower. We we have had this conversation ad nauseum with any number of cities. You know, we have a warehouse of 500 bikes plus. We don't even have the time to inventory them. And I'm like, we'll get you five volunteers tomorrow. You know, just, just let us in. We'll we'll take care of it. I'm like, well, you're actually not allowed in this facility because it's like the same facility where we're storing AK-47s and coke and like it's just, you just not anybody can wander in here right we occasionally get an intern or somebody who can come in here and do this but in terms of what we're actually doing that process is not always great having said that there are some police departments that are fantastic they use our bulk upload tool and they just take they just select a column in excel plop it in a bike index and bike index is like okay here's the 12 that we know about there's some property warehouse guys that we talk to that are phenomenal and will go way above and beyond. Um, I mean, they'll, they'll call up manufacturers, they'll call up individual stores, they'll get into biking Facebook groups. They're like, look, I know I have this thing and I know it's special to somebody. 
we haven't found an owner. I'm not going to let this thing go to auction. Help me, help me find the owner on this, and we will do that. We'll we'll sort of get out on social media. We'll find, uh, you know, if it's a Rivendell, we'll find the the Rivendell users group on Facebook, and we'll sort of beat the drum until we find an owner. So it, it's honestly all over the board. It really depends on the city, and it really depends on the police agency. I mean, we we do we see that here too because all all the bikes that go through Portland end up on Gov Deals, which is one of these these municipal auction sites. And we've had people find their bikes on Gov Deals and, and send these sort of angry messages like, hey, what the hell, guys? <laughs> you know, I filed my police report. I registered on Bike Index. I put, you know, I, I, this thing is everywhere. How the hell could this have gone to auction? Why are you selling this? And they'll, they'll come back to us and say, that's funny, because we actually did. You know, we checked our system. We checked even Bike Index. We checked, like, and, and sometimes they just fall through the cracks. That was much more prevalent about five years ago. I think the systems have tightened up since then. But that's that's just Portland. That's you know, take that same problem and multiply it by every city in America, and it's just it's crazy. This is the part where we talked a little bit about that whole uglifying angle. Whereas if you had a brand new Rivendell, and should you could you camouflage it? I mean, you buy a nice bike because it's a nice bike. So the point of making it ugly just seems weird, but. What if it stopped it from being stolen? It's like losing weight by making your food taste bad. Yeah, I, I doubt I doubt that a person who owns a Rivendell is going to consciously make it uglier, though. <laughs> like, I, you know, like the whole the whole the whole point is is yeah, the whole point is to have this nice shiny thing and have this beautiful thing. I mean, the the thing that we tell people is just take pictures of your bike. If you can alter your bike in some way that makes it super unique just to you, like stick a sticker on it, or if there's a dent or a scratch, or a, did you put one little weirdo anodized component on the bike? Pretend you're looking at that bike on Craigslist a month from now, and you have to convince a cop, I am 100% sure that this is mine, and here's why. I put this sticker right here, or I had this one anodized stem cap, or something like that. You know, we get this, this is like my bread and butter every day, is... Bike gets stolen, bike gets registered with Bike Index, bike is found 20 minutes later on OfferUp because OfferUp sucks. You know, victim calls police, police are like, we need, we, we don't need 50, 60% sure, like how are you absolutely sure this is yours and not just another bike with the same make and model? And if you've got that detail, right, if you've got that one thing or you've got those couple factors where you can go from 75% sure to 100% sure it makes all the difference in the world. Plus, if you've got pictures in your serial and your proof of purchase and all that stuff, sure. But when you're just looking at five or six crappy blurry photos that somebody took in the woods at three o'clock in the morning and then threw it up online for $200 with a description that says, if you come to me, I'll make it 150 like uh, just the sketchiest bullshit, that's going to that's gonna make all the difference. I do see people like, you know, they'll cover up logos or they'll, they'll sort of, there's this protective tape type stuff you can put on some bikes just to sort of keep them pristine and keep them from getting beat up. And that does sort of mask their identity. But I, I think your average person, like they want, they want the aesthetics of the bike, right? Like that's, if, if you're riding a, a hot ass Gorilla Gravity, you, you want it to look hot. <laughs> like if you're riding a chrome anodized Fixie, you want it to be all chromed out and all hot. Like, you know, you want it to look good. I think people in really dense urban areas like New York and San Francisco, ab absolutely this sort of like camouflage is, is a great additive. It's a great, you know, extra variable to throw in there. You know, I, I have had way back in the day when I had my first couple bikes stolen, like one of those bikes was a beater bike and that one almost hurt more, you know, if not as much. Because it was like, okay, even I now I'm half-assing this and it's still like, it's still not good enough, right? This $50 piece of shit I got at the Bikus, you know, Bike Rebuild Community Center and Vegan, like, Anarchist Collective, like, you still stole that piece of shit. Is nothing, is nothing safe. The other thing in the last two years that I would tell that new person with their shiny new Rivendell is don't, I don't know about where you live, the only construction that's been happening in Portland and Seattle and San Francisco are these five to seven story condos. It's exactly the same building again and again and again and again. And every single one of these, it's like, we have a bike room. You are not allowed to bring your bikes up to your apartment. It is against our policies. It's, you know, they, everyone tries to cite this quote unquote fire hazard thing, which doesn't actually exist. And those bike rooms are buffets for thieves. Like we have seen 
especially during the pandemic, those things got hit nightly. And it was a two or three man crew. They'd crowbar the door. They'd bring their own tools. They'd bring their extension cords for Christ's sakes. And we know this because we have them on camera. I've watched hours of footage of these guys doing this. And once that bike room is breached, the, the companies typically use these really cheap aluminum racks. They're just sort of like the lowest. And, you know, we would just watch these guys on camera go right down the rack from left to right, saw the rack off the wall, take the bike, saw the rack off the wall, take the bike. And you can, you can sit there and watch them walk up and down the aisles and pick out the good stuff and say, okay, we'll get these, but not this. You know, get, get this brand because it's sweet. Don't get the Trek over here. And, you know, we, we just straight up started writing articles called do not leave, your, you know, <laughs> ignore your apartment building, take your bike in your apartment, like screw them, screw their policies. Because we've seen this same apartment get hit six times in 12 months and then not tell their residents about it and not beef up their security. Like, it, just, just stop obeying them. <laughs> just do, do not listen to them. <laughs> Yeah, the new hotness is the AirTag. I am sort of gritting, gritting my teeth because just because it comes from Apple doesn't mean it's a magic bullet. Everyone's like, AirTags are going to solve bike theft. I'm like, bullshit, you know, but a different discussion. Honestly, this is, this is a conversation I have with victims a lot where it's like, I want to, I want to get involved. I got robbed. I think this is a crap situation. I've just come out of the other side of it. I hate everyone. I hate my building. I hate my police. I hate my, you know, I hate my insurer who's giving me a hard time and it turns out, you know, they don't they don't want to cover my e-bike because they consider it a vehicle, not a bike. I hate the lawmakers in the state. I hate this the app offer up where my bike is for sale. I hate, they come out of this, you know, just pretty much hating everybody except us. Um, so, we, you know, I get this question a lot, which is like, you know, what, because, well, I, you know, I say that, but it's, it's like, we are basically the gateway to the only people that give a shit. You know, a lot of these clues that come in about, hey, I saw this bike, it looks exactly like yours, I took a screenshot, it's on the thing, here's the guy's name, people are like, you know what, that's not my bike, but the fact that there's somebody out there doing this is amazing. Like, you just made my whole day. You know, the fact that there are eyes out, and the fact that I am getting this input, I am getting these spottings, I am getting these clues, and I don't even know you, is, is amazing. Like, I want to do that, how do I do that? So I often have this conversation with people who, who say, look, what do I do? How do I, how do I get from this area of hating everything about this and everyone involved to like being proactive and like helping my community again? Lately, I've been telling, telling them like, come hunt with us, right? Like you, you can do what dozens of people already are doing every morning. You wake up, you turn your computer on, you grab a cup of coffee, on your left tab is bike index, on your right tab is Craigslist or OfferUp or, you know, Facebook Marketplace. And you can join one of your local Facebook groups, Pacific Northwest Stolen Bikes, or Seattle Stolen Bikes, or Denver Stolen Bikes, or New Orleans, or like, and you can, at this point, yes, you can do this advocacy stuff. You can try to lobby your building. You can try to get people to be better about their policies and about locking and about security. If, if you just want to chase these with us, we can do that all day long with you and we need your help. And that's a way I sort of invite people to take part in this. Confronting people can be very dangerous, but there are other ways to get involved. Well, you can get a bike index account. You can register your bikes. You can do a little research and see if there's a stolen bikes group in your area. Odds are that there is. A lot of the intel that's coming in in those, some of those groups are amazing. I mean, without going down a really weird rabbit hole, a lot of these groups know who the thieves are, where they are. They're tracking them, they're tracking their sales, they know, you know, they know everything about these guys. And it's all just about putting together, if you can connect a couple dots for somebody and say, look, I saw your post, I see your bike index link, this dude who we already know is a thief, I saw him, he's got a bike that looks like yours, he's at this location. That is the difference between nothing happening and then getting a cop to go out and deal with it or dealing with it yourself. It's all about connecting those dots. Many of these groups have law enforcement in them, they're just keeping a low profile. They are seeing the same data that comes through. They're just not advertising like, I am, you know, officer so-and-so because he's like a triathlete guy, he's a bike guy. Like, it's worth sort of diving into this community of people who are like, I'm gonna be proactive about checking on bikes and registering bikes through Bike Index and I'm gonna go talk to my local shop and ask them to use Bike Index or I'm gonna go talk to my building and say, you guys suck. You've had six burglaries in 12 months and you haven't told it, you know. The only reason we're finding each other is because I'm seeing all these other bikes with my god 
Instagram address on it, showing up on Bike Index, and I messaged them and said, did you have a bike stolen too? And he's like, yeah, I live on the third floor. And we're like, why didn't the building tell us? And we're like, I don't know. So we're connecting those people, we're making those connections, we're sort of showing people the bigger picture, and we're, we're trying to get them plugged into and involved with this is a thing you can do. We have a bunch of mechanics who we've never spoken to their shop. We would love to talk to their shop, but they, you know, they belong to a couple of these groups. Maybe they were a theft victim. Maybe their friends got robbed. They read about bike index. You know, the next time a, a $10,000 bike comes in with a dude who is the wrong size for it, has the wrong clothes, and has needle marks on his arm, they're like, "Hey, that's not your bike. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take five minutes here and figure out who it belongs to." and then I'm gonna kick you out of my shop. That's another situation that happens. As we had in Southern California, you know, one of these groups that were in, one of the people was involved with like their local, it's like a multi-school system. It was like a, a, I don't know what you call it, but they're like, hey, you know, this would be perfect for our five campuses. You know, we, we have this horrible, you know, not only inventory problem, but theft problem, and it's and we're gonna have these bikes go from campus to campus. Like, we, we need like a unified view on all these bikes. Man, we should just use Bike Index. And, you know, yeah, we're absolutely happy to support those people and do that thing. We try to get people involved in a way that they can channel some of that rage, that, that white-hot burning rage of theft into something proactive. And we tell a lot of people Sometimes we find their bike and it's for sale and we know who it is and we try to get a meetup and we try to get a police up. You, you try to line these 10 variables up and get their bike back and it doesn't always work, right? It, it can always go wrong and, and it's really depressing. And I tell them like, look, we may not get this dude on your bike, but if you help us watch him, if you keep an eye on his sales, if you keep an eye on his social media, if you watch his Facebook, if you stick to this guy like glue, we'll get him on the next one. And like, I can tell you there's no happier person that, than that person when they pop up a week later and say, yeah, okay, I got the next one. Here's this bike, here it is in Bike Index, here's the police report, let's go get this son of a bitch. <laughs> like, there is no happier theft victim in the world than that theft victim who's like, I'm gonna get this, I am gonna ruin this guy's day and or week, and, and it's gonna be me, you know? Um, and it's gonna, be, it's gonna be karma. And that that's a great way to engage, it's like a weird, dark way to engage people, but it's a way to get people involved in the problem at a very, very granular level. You may have seen some bait bike videos where people take a bike that's booby-trapped or sabotaged and leave it out as a lure for potential bike thieves. While I like the concept of justice and getting bikes back, these videos just seem extremely cruel, mean-spirited, and they certainly seem more wrong than stealing a department store bicycle. If these videos are real, there's a huge potential for lawsuit as people really appear to get hurt when they start to ride away with the bait bike and then it falls apart beneath them. These are not the bait bites that the police are using. These are almost vigilante. Fortunately, all that stuff, all that stuff is fake. All those, all those stupid videos are fake. I mean, the, the, the liability there and the, the, the illegality, they're all setups, they're all fake. It's all just like viral clickbait bullshit videos. But it does speak to a certain desire for revenge, right? I mean, it speaks to like, pe people want justice. They want, you know, and it, and it just sucks. I mean, there's a post this morning in San Diego Stolen Bikes where, but basically this, this dude has his backpack on the ground. And it's got these two huge ass bolt cutters. And he's like, hey, what's up with those bolt cutters? He's like, well, it lets me break into garages and steal bikes. Just completely nonchalant about it. Cool you dude like you're 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 human being like it's just they're so brazen and they're so open about it because nobody's doing anything it's a weird multifaceted problem like there's no one crazy silver bullet like i, I wish i wish there was you're asking me how we work i'm in portland so we're naturally strong here but we're actually in pretty much every city in every state we're in Canada or in Mexico. We've recovered bikes in Australia. We work with a bunch of European partners. We're all over the place. If you want to get involved, you know, you can register your own bike. It's a piece of cake. It's free. It's done online. If you are like in the biking community, a shop owner or a cyclist, or you belong to a cycling club, or maybe you know somebody that owns a shop, we've got some stuff that sort of 
speaks to those organizations where if you're a bike shop, you can register bikes as they come in and out the door and it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. And like if you're with the city, we have this whole system where you can set up a tent and register people's bikes at things like Seclovia or, you know, they call them like Sunday Parkways here in Portland. I've done events for the Portland Century, the 100 mile bike ride. You know, we have educational partners who are like, we're going to get 6,000 freshmen every year. We want to register their bikes not only for anti-theft, but when those freshmen leave their damn bikes on campus, we want to deal with it. We need to figure out who they belong to so we don't trash them. And, you know, we have a system for that. We have a ambassador system for people that are really into, into it and want to talk to other people in other cities and states that are using Bike Index to solve problems. And we mostly coordinate on Slack, which has turned out to be really interesting because we get, you know, hey, we're going to be doing this bike event. What's the best way to register people's bikes? Or... I have a detective in my precinct looking at these five bikes right now at a crime scene. Can somebody help me figure out what the make and model is? Because, you know, we need to search our reports. And we've got 20 bike nerds that can nail a make and model, you know, in, in two seconds. So it's just a lot of back and forth of people trading tips and methodologies and tricks and, and you know, like talking about what works in their area and what doesn't work. We work with every, you know, our partnerships range from cities to law enforcement to bike shops to you know guys that just buy and sell bikes on craigslist to you know cycling organizations to racing organizations like you name it and anybody who likes bikes or comes into contact with a bunch of bikes and, and wants to help to protect them you can go to bikeindex.org and start that right now and we're nonprofit; it's all free we're not going to market to you we're not trying to sell anything we're not trying to like sell any stupid security theater like we're, we're actually focusing on the problem so that that is bike index there's plenty more stories to come from them but some of them are tied up in court right now 60 or 90 days out i would love to talk to you more about multi-state criminal networks and i will talk your freaking ear off This is not to be confused with other bike registers that you might have heard about even from years ago. This is a non-profit organization and they are run solely on donations. You know, we're not shy about hitting people up for, hey, we just recovered your $4,000 bike and saved you, you know, at least a $1,000 deductible. Donate, goddammit. Uh, <laughs> so we're not, we're not shy about that. We, we hit people pretty hard when we've been involved with the recovery. We also have our promoted alerts, which we make a very small amount on, but the whole idea is, um, you know, basically the more eyeballs you can get on your bike in a geographic area, it's just statistically the greater chance you're gonna have on getting that bike back. So if your bike gets stolen, Bike Index will take its information and photograph and auto format a picture and use the Facebook and Instagram ad network to place a targeted ad in that region. We eat a little bit of time on that labor. So we, you know, it's like a $8 ad and we take $2 or something like that. It has worked great. It's, I mean, it works. For like six bucks, if I can make 12,000 people in the Portland area see a picture of my bike, they're gonna find that bike. That is another way we make money, um, but not a ton. Um, we do custom things for cities and schools. Educational institutions often have things like parking tickets or we have this bike, it's improperly locked, we have to impound it, how the hell do we find the owner? They have asset inventory problems that aren't necessarily theft related. So if they use Bike Index, we can solve those problems too and we charge them for it. So we have some university partners that we have created solutions for that are like, look, you know, you're going to bring us 100,000 bikes, we're going to charge you for that. So that is, that is some of the ways we make money. We tried chasing some grants. It's really hard. We don't really get money from cities or states. And I have sat in so many meetings with so many cities and so many states and said, look, we helped recover half a million dollars worth of bikes in your city in 2018 with none of your support. Zero. Zero municipal support. No grants, no labor, no manpower, no PR, not even a damn tweet from you guys. Imagine what we could do if we had the support of your city. You know, it's a hard pitch to make because they're like, well, you're already doing great. Why do you need us? <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, but it's really painful. Um, you know, we have all these crazy stats. Yeah, we're a 501c3. Yeah, we're we're a nonprofit. I mean, we we scrape money anywhere we can. We have a couple also really nice people that have done corporate giving. So we have some like you know Googlers and some Microsoft people. We help recover their bike, and they're like you know they will triple whatever I donate because it's a corporate matching. So we get a little bit of that, but it's honestly the biggest, the largest source of our income is donations. 
It's just people who are like, I hate thieves and I love what you guys are doing. Here's 10 bucks. We got to talking about how to register bikes en masse at like, say, a bike rally or a swap meet. Not only would that be awesome, but we have a little how-to for you, and we have a way you can do it on your phones, and it's super easy, and I can put you in touch with Lily, who handles only cities and educational institutions. That'd be great. Yeah, and it won't cost you a thing. It won't cost you a single dime. Thank you very much, and please check them out at bikeindex.org. Now it's time for Gratitudes at the Midroll. First, a big thank you to everybody all over the world downloading. We're almost up to 100,000 downloads. People are listening in all 50 states and close to 90 countries around the world. That blows my mind. I am extremely grateful and thank you very much. I'd like to thank Tristanisms for a really nice review on iTunes. That is greatly appreciated. If you like the show and can do a review or a rating there, I mean, even if you're not listening on iTunes or Apple these days, if you have an old account and you can go in there and leave the show rating it does this thing where there's these piggyback sites which take the ratings from there and then put them to other places so you're really giving the show a huge boost if you leave us a positive rating or review on the apple products so thank you very much for doing that podbean is the hosting service that i use to host the podcast so following there really helps the profile as well online big thank you for following on podbean to bobby ricard F. Vugzukiu and Jacobus Nell. Thank you very much for following on Podbean. Seriously, thank you if you follow anywhere. Since the last episode, about 30 people have subscribed on YouTube to our channel, which is mostly just the podcast there, but that's very helpful as well. So if you're on YouTube sometimes, please and thank you for giving us a follow there. I would also like to give a huge thank you to the people who've asked for and shared and swapped and stuck on their friend's water bottle uh, the stickers that we have for the show. To me, sending out free stickers just seems like an honest way of advertising. I'd rather send out some stickers to people who like the show than pay Facebook to like spam somebody to try and get them interested. So there's plenty of different sticker designs from ones with a bicycle being trampled by an elephant to the Karma logo with or without cats. There's a dog one of Falky. There's some shiny ones. Yeah, so like say there's a sign on the bike path that already has a ton of stickers on it. Pop one up there and maybe, you know, maybe somebody riding their bike by it, sees it, looks it up, subscribes, and then not only that, they share a story that we're all amazed by later. So that's that's the power of stickers. I'm probably like Michael Scott giving away gift baskets here, but I think that stickers are cool and that's the way we should go. If you want a pack of free stickers, just contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. And yeah, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, I will send you some free stickers. Just please make your address look the way it's supposed to look on the letter. When I send off to some faraway countries, I'm always like, am I putting this before this? Or does this part go after that part? Because they don't all look the same addresses. If you want to help out the show in another way, you can check out my Patreon page. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help to support the show. That includes like the postage for the free stickers, making the stickers, the hosting services, the file storage services, when I need new equipment and stuff like that. I am not planning on quitting my day job anytime soon. I love being a teacher, so that's not what it's about it's just trying to break even with the show at this point anyway if you're interested in that you can just go to patreon and search up bike karma and no mid-roll thank yous would be complete without mentioning fred thomas at the frame and wheel fred can help you sell your bicycles accessories parts without you doing any of the work so you get more time space and cash you might be thinking to yourself well doesn't fred charge me for that well yeah it's a business But you don't have to pay him. He takes it right out of the money that he sells the stuff for. So then you might say, well, why don't I just do that myself? Well, you haven't. Prices for bicycles and bicycle parts went through the roof during the pandemic. If you didn't take advantage of that already, you probably aren't going to do it yourself. Look, I enjoy selling stuff. I 
run a swap meet and still every once in a while I pack up a box and send it off to Fred because I don't want to have to deal with it. There's some things that Fred has sold for me that I haven't been able to sell at a swap meet. I mean, there's something to be said for his expertise. He takes the pictures, they look incredible. He does the research, he knows the prices, he knows exactly what to ask, so that when he puts it out there, he gets like the best price that he can for selling that item. He deals with the customers, he deals with the packing, he deals with the shipping, but all that stuff is where Fred lives and he excels at all that stuff. And what's even better is that stuff that's been laying around your house is now in the hands of somebody who truly wants it. So if you've got some used bicycles, bicycle parts, accessories, why not check out Fred at The Frame and Wheel? If you do happen to check him out on social media at The Frame and Wheel, please tell him you heard about him on the Bike Karma podcast. He's been a great supporter and friend of the show. Now let's roll on to our next story. Cycling is great for experiencing history. If you find an old wall with some writing on it, you can stop and study it for as long as you want, get back on your bike, and then keep going. Some places that you'll pass through in a bike where a car can't fit, you can experience some views that have been unchanged for maybe 50, 100 years or more. You can cover more ground than by walking, but you're also more in tune with your surroundings than most other vehicles. The events in history can be wonderful or they can be brutal. What I love about history is it reminds me that we're all in this eternal flow of humanity. When you think you're the first person who's ever laid a wheel on a trail, there's probably been somebody there before you. Sometimes you never know who was there before you. How long ago? Why were they traveling the path they did? Other times people travel with a really specific purpose. The goal of this show is to bring people together. Anyone who's ridden any type of bike can relate to anybody else. The context of all our experiences is very, very different. But on that one little note, we can look at each other and say, Ah, yes, I have ridden a bicycle as well. I know what that feels like. We can stare at people in old photographs and we can say, I know what it feels like to pedal on gravel. I wonder how much harder it would have been to do it with that rifle strapped to the side on a heavy steel bike with only two gear options maybe if you were lucky. It's an experience that has changed and it hasn't. So much is similar, so much is different. With just a little bit of imagination, we can identify and empathize with these historic cyclists. Looking back to the 1890s, the Buffalo Soldiers were primarily African-American soldiers who, after the Civil War, were serving in the army by exploring the western frontier. One particular group of these soldiers did it by bicycle. When you see one of the black and white photographs of them, you can't help but be filled with admiration, but also feel a deep respect for the challenges they must have faced. There was no sag wagon. There were no puncture-resistant tires. There were no anti-stretch chains. Recently, I saw another post about this group on Eric Cedeno's Instagram feed. You might remember him from an earlier episode where he traced the path of the Underground Railroad by bicycle, and he shared some of his adventures with us. He's a bicycle explorer, a business owner, and I think he's the only professional model I know. And he's planning on tracing the route of these Buffalo Soldier cyclists across the West, and he was nice enough to talk to me about it. Eric Cedeno, also known as the Bicycle Nomad. You can follow me on Instagram at bicycle underscore nomad, on Facebook at bicycle nomad. Wanted to talk to you about a group of writers who I have been fascinated with. Their history. This is the Buffalo Soldiers, 25th Infantry out of Fort Missoula, Montana. This is Black History. This is American history. This is bicycle history. Starts with in 1895 with the promotion of General Nelson A. Miles, who expanded the initiative involving the introduction of bicycle troops in the U.S. Army. The Volunteer Corps was led by Lieutenant James A. Moss, and the 25th and the Volunteer Group tested the bicycles by completing several long-distance trips. 
Their first trip was a four-day trip, 126-mile trip to Lake McDonald, directly north of Fort Missoula, carrying roughly about 120 pounds supplies and 50 pounds of ammunition. The cyclists endure rough roads, steep hills, muddy boots, and constant bicycle repairs. Despite the obstacle, the trip was actually a success. And six days later, they embarked on their next trip, a 325-mile trip from Fort Missoula to Fort Yellowstone. Traveling about 45 miles a day, the regiment arrived at Yellowstone after an eight-and-a-half-day trek. The men had to carry food and supplies for their trip, increasing the weight to the bicycle. Technical issues, mainly tires, continue to create problems for the soldiers, with tires constantly needing replaced due to damage and poor design. More technical issues were found during the trek back to Fort Missoula from Yellowstone with the mud and making the terrain very difficult to traverse. After more training, maneuvers, and small-scale tests, the 25th completed the trip from Fort Missoula to St. Louis, Missouri. The 1,900-mile trip involved different climates and altitude as well, both wet and dry terrain, which each posed its own problem for the 25th. 20 men who met the Army's physical specification were joined by four physicians, Dr. James Kennedy and journalist Edward Booz of the Daily Missoulian for this trip. They set off for St. Louis on June 14 of 1897. The group suffered from thirst, hunger, and the ill effects of alkali water, cold, heat, and loss of sleep, shifting from snow and sleet of the Rocky Mountains to the warm temperatures of the lower X elevation proved to be a challenge for the corpse. The contaminated water made several members ill, and they actually had to catch up with the group by train once they recovered. Mud and poor road conditions slowed the group down as well, causing the rations to run out ahead of schedule. The bicycles could not ride through the mud, so the men often had to carry them. Lieutenant Moss estimated that the corp had to dismount every seven miles due to the road conditions. They did not reach the destination until July 24th of 1897. The group was actually greeted in a celebration by St. Louis locals and some cyclists. After submitting the report, Moss petitioned to the group to ride from St. Louis to St. Paul, Minnesota, but his request was actually denied, and the men traveled back to Missoula by train. On February 7th of 1898, Lieutenant Moss requested another trip for the corps this time from Fort Missoula to San Francisco. But the Spanish-American War broke out in April of 1898. The 25th was reassigned to active duty in Cuba, and all further tests were canceled. Lieutenant Moss was reassigned to the 24th Infantry and petitioned the bicycles to be utilized in Cuba. This was rejected by the U.S. Army, who will go on to use motorcycles and automobiles in future wars. On June 14, 2022, at 5.30 in the morning, I will be retracing by bicycle, 125 years later, their historical route from Fort Missoula, Montana to St. Louis, Missouri. In the next few months leading up to the ride, I'll be sharing some of the content on my social media at bicycle underscore nomad on Instagram and on Facebook at bicycle nomad. Follow me along this journey to retrace an amazing history. Good day, this is Rowan de Bonaire of the Velocipedium here in Lancashire, England. I'm here to remind you always to do your ABC quick check before every ride, no matter how short. So here we go. A is for air. Check those tyres, which is spelt with a Y, by the way. B is for brakes. C is for your chain. And quick is your quick release or your wheel nuts. Just check that those wheels are going to stay where they belong. Thank you, Tom. And here's wishing you all tailwinds and joyful cycling. Toodle pip.
Thanks for coming along for the ride on another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'd like to thank our guests from the show from the Bicycle Index and Bicycle Nomad. And as always, would like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music, which is used with permission. Thank you very much. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or search up Keller Glass. You'll be glad you did. All the other music in the show is royalty-free, and I appreciate those musicians as well. If you have any comments about the show, have any ideas for stories, want some free stickers, maybe have a sponsorship idea, perhaps you could get me that Oprah interview I've been waiting for for oh so long. You can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to help out the show for free, you can just follow us on any platform from Audible to iTunes to YouTube to Instagram to Twitter. Please and thank you very much. With the exception of the music, the Bike Karma podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyrights, trademarks, and all of that are asserted and reserved. There are many interesting stories coming up in the pipeline, from fixing bicycles off of a narrowboat in the UK, to what makes somebody start a bicycle film festival. Why would somebody want to shred instead of hammer? If you are patiently waiting for your story to come up in the queue, I appreciate that. I try and put a little love into each episode, and I hope you'll enjoy yours when it comes out. For those of you who follow the show, you know that usually once a year there's a comedy episode that comes out around April. Last year was skipped because, you know, and this year it's coming out and hopefully we can make each other laugh. Till next time, keep it wheel. And someday-